What's going on in our schools? Seems like controversies around questions of identity, religion, and race are constant, erupting into public view on a regular basis. Since education is the beating heart of society, if our schools are in crisis, then society itself is in crisis. The American Jewish community is directly impacted. I have spoken with and lamented with many of you, middle school, high school, and college students, and their parents. I have seen firsthand the breadth of discomfort amongst Jewish youngsters blamed for every perceived transgression of the Israeli government and sometimes accused of racial insensitivity, prejudice, privilege, and frailty. I'm well aware of the fear of Jewish parents as to what awaits their high school children when they get to college. American universities today seem awash in intolerant radical ideas, campuses boiling with rage, students and faculty expressing profoundly anti-Israel attitudes that frequently spill over into animosity towards Jews and downright anti-Semitism. I want to emphasize at the outset my high regard for educators. We're in the same business. Rabbis are teachers. It is the meaning of the Hebrew word rav, educator. We have so many great teachers in our congregation, master educators, university professors. I feel and have always felt from day one a special kinship with them. I feel as if I understand them and they understand me. It is a delight to sit at their feet and learn from them. Most of the teachers I have met in my near 40 years in New York City are motivated by the best of ideals and they care deeply about their students. If you want to be inspired, speak to a dedicated teacher. It may affect you for your lifetime. Several of us in later adulthood credit a teacher for influencing who we became. Moreover, many New York schools are exceptional among the finest educational institutions in our country, producing the most sophisticated, the most sensitive and articulate young adults. I don't envy educators and school administrators nowadays. In one of my recent conversations with the head of a prominent New York City school, I mentioned to that person that I thought they had the most difficult job in the city. I always assumed that rabbis had a pretty difficult job trying to balance so many competing ideas and interests and values and motivations and passions. But you teachers and administrators, you admissions officers, diversity, equity, and inclusion consultants, how do you even do your job nowadays? The departure, voluntary or forced, 
of senior school professionals in the past few years is a reflection of our turbulent times and evidence of the difficulty of the job today. Of course, it's not only schools. Many critical institutions of American life, government, law, media, academia, entertainment, religion, are sagging under the stress of the tension. But it all starts in schools. This is where we first receive our understanding of the world. Therefore, the stakes are very high. We are engaged in a struggle for the hearts and minds of the next generation of Americans who will shape the future and the destiny of this country. Many of our controversies are positive. Jewish sages teach every controversy that is for the sake of heaven, for the sake of deeper understanding, is good and destined to endure. America is engaged in an ongoing and necessary racial reckoning. I have spoken with you many times about our people's values. Racism, the horrendously evil idea that one group, a particular race, is inherently inferior, subverts every principle of Jewish thought. Dehumanization is the ultimate logic of racism. As imprisonment marks a person for life, so slavery marks a people in perpetuity. Slavery is a monstrous atrocity. The scars never fully heal. The pain never fully recedes. Practically every Jewish festival recalls the exodus from Egypt. Every day in worship, we recite prayers highlighting our liberation. We did it again today, anticipating that later generations would question why Judaism obsesses over the enslavement of our people. The Torah teaches that it was in order to sensitize Jews to the pain of alienation and oppression. Unless you yourself experience persecution, you don't really know what it feels like. And if you don't really know what it feels like, you cannot be the kind of liberator expected of Jews. It goes without saying that progress towards full racial justice in America is frustratingly slow filled with disappointments and with setbacks. I resonate with the impatience expressed by many and the need to be proactive in combating racism. In one of the great liberation and uniquely American documents of the 20th century, Martin Luther King wrote from his Birmingham jail cell, for years now I've heard the word wait. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see that justice too long delayed is justice denied. It is easy for those who never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say wait. 
But there comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into an abyss of injustice where they experience the blackness of corroding despair. Jews and all people of good faith are obligated to continue to do the hard work of social repair. We must be proactive, not only reactive. Waiting another generation is not an option. It's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of injustice to say, wait. We cannot wait. Thus, I support programs and initiatives that promote diversity. I am in favor of culturally sensitive and culturally affirming curricula in schools. Teachers should address racism in meaningful ways, including highlighting systems that have been or still are systemically racist. They are right to teach the true and complete history of slavery in our country and challenge students to grapple with its residue in their lives. American youth should know much more than they do about the failure of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, race riots, and the civil rights movement. And I am aghast at legislative efforts recently to restrict discussions of race that may cause, quote, discomfort, guilt, anguish, or another form of psychological distress. Under this definition, teaching Martin Luther King's I have a dream speech would be illegal. I believe in common decency. I believe that young adults should be taught to respect all people. Years ago, I met the New York City Schools Chancellor and I asked him whether public schools teach ethical behavior. His response was, that is not their job. It's your job, Rabbi, he said. Yours and the parents. We have a hard enough time teaching reading, writing, and arithmetic. That response stayed with me. Someone needs to teach our children how to act with just plain old decency. Therefore, I support the establishment of a school culture where students are taught to respect each other. Racial insults, whether direct, implied, in person, or online, should be addressed seriously and comprehensively by schools. From an early age, we must be encouraged to view the world not only from the inside out, not only from our own experiences, but also from the perspective of others. Schools are uniquely capable of training us from our youngest years to expand our horizons. The right teachers, in the right environment can make a profound difference in how we view our world. However, and what I'm about to say, I say with great reluctance, 
because I know it will be misunderstood. Erroneously by some, willfully by others. However, I have an operating assumption that guides me in assessing social theories. If a philosophy produces animosity towards Jews, by definition, the philosophy is flawed. It is neither just nor liberal, even if it employs the language of liberalism and justice. If a theory produces hatred of the Jewish state, not criticism, fair or unfair, but obsessive loathing, by definition, there is something wrong with the theory. An intellectual approach that advocates for the destruction of Israel, by definition, cannot be just or liberal. No matter the high-sounding words camouflaging its illiberalism. A theory that automatically defines and categorizes Jews as a racial group, by definition, cannot be liberal or just. Not only is it factually untrue, check your ignorance. You don't know anything about us. There are Jews of every color and race, and in fact, the majority of the world's Jews are not of European descent. Not only is it factually untrue, it also distorts Jewish values. The way we see ourselves. Jews never divided the world or the Jewish people by skin color. We divide the world by values and deeds good ideas and bad ideas, good actions and bad actions. Truly liberal approaches allow and encourage individuals and groups to define themselves. This is what diversity means to a liberal, that different cultures, languages, religions, and traditions possess unique destiny unique dignity and offer profound benefit to society. Distinct and distinctive group identities are beneficial. They give meaning and direction to our lives. They inject us with cultural and intellectual energy, pride, and purpose. In America, we do not insist on uniformity to achieve unity. It is perfectly acceptable to have Jewish schools, black universities, Asian American affinity groups, but buses still need to be integrated. Policing still needs to be equitably just. And redlining is still impermissible. Assimilation of all distinct cultures into one giant melting pot is not the goal of America. Integration and equality of opportunity 
is. You don't get to define for Jews how we see ourselves. You only get to decide whether you want to accept Jews the way we see ourselves. It's what you demand of every other group in the name of diversity, equity, inclusion, and tolerance. True liberalism demands that you not make racial assumptions about us, especially assumptions that we ourselves do not make. If in the name of diversity, equity, and inclusion, Jewish children are lumped into an identity group by virtue of their immutable characteristics, the color of their skin, not the content of their character, if they are shepherded into school affinity groups that define them the way others would like to see Jews, not the way our children define themselves, there can be dozens of affinity groups in school, but no Jewish affinity group. If in the name of social justice, Jewish children are accused of undeserved privilege and economic exploitation, and thus invested in and colluders with racism by virtue of the color of their skin, not the content of their character or the measure of their deeds, And if in the name of anti-racism, Jewish children are viewed primarily or exclusively through the prism of their race and every objection of every Jewish student or their parents is evidence of their fragility, if in the name of inclusion, Jewish students are excluded from advocacy groups because of some warped intersectional social theory that requires them to disown Israel first, then our understanding of justice and liberalism has gone far astray. And we cannot allow it. We must push back. It's fascinating to observe that the most intense controversies in the city and throughout the country are erupting in the most progressive schools and universities. It's a warning that something is going on in the progressive world that is leading to polarization, pulling us in two opposite polar directions when we should be, and in many cases, our allies in the struggle for social justice. It is a beacon call, a shofar blast, an urgent challenge to the Jewish community to get involved. Since I'm a liberal rabbi, and many of you, most of you, are liberal Jews. It's a reformed synagogue. I want to remind you of the basic tenets of liberalism. Liberals understand and respect complexity. We appreciate that the human heart is far too complicated and society is far too complex to construct one 
overarching theory and one dogmatic solution to all social problems. Liberals are instinctively uneasy about an assertion that the only possible explanation for different social outcomes must be different and discriminatory treatment. Liberals rebel against all leveling and uniformities. We believe that these are inconsistent with human nature. It's why many of you disagree now with what I'm saying. We see the world differently. We perceive things differently. The most liberating spaces are where the death grip of suffocating certainty and stifling uniformity cannot reach. Greek mythology tells of Procrustes. He was the great leveler. He wanted uniformity of outcomes, that everyone should be the same size. So he invented a bed, the Procrustean bed, that when passers-by lay down, if they were too short for the bed, he stretched them. And if they were too Large for the bed, he chopped off their limbs. Eventually, Theseus slayed Procrustes. He was too great a danger to society. The ancient Greeks understood that the impulse to uniformity often leads to dangerous and reckless excess. That is why so many social theorists who made it, have started out as liberal ended up illiberal. They may have accurately perceived the problem. Marxists were right in perceiving the unjust, unjust exploitation of the workers. But the one-size-fits-all analysis, producing the dogmatism of one solution, did incalculable damage to society and to the workers themselves. The French revolutionaries were right in perceiving the injustices of the monarchy. They were right to insist on liberty. But intellectual and political excess led to the guillotine. Robespierre, the liberal emancipator, became a tyrant and himself ended up guillotined. The French Revolution devoured itself and ended up postponing for decades the democratic republic it sought. Liberals believe that while in heaven there may be absolute truth, on earth there is only truth filtered through human limitations and fallibilities. For this reason, we liberals emphasize freedom of speech, freedom of thought, freedom of religion, intellectual and political pluralism. We believe in carving out as much space as possible in society to allow and encourage a vibrant marketplace of ideas. We do not seek to shut down debate through ostracism, excommunication, or uniform speech. To the contrary, we want to encourage you to express your opinions for two reasons. First, 
to learn from you. You might actually have something interesting and important to teach me. You might even convince me. And second, to challenge and refine my own thinking so that I may refute and perhaps convince you. Liberals believe that through different and competing ideas, society will make progress. This progress might be frustratingly slow at times, but it will be real and ineluctable. Liberalism is a mindset. It is a mindset that says liberals are optimistic about the future. I can change. My opponent can change. Even my enemy can change. A theory that abandons these principles may be many different things, but it cannot be liberal. It's why the theory of white fragility is, at its core, illiberal. It is accurate and undeniably true that many white Americans are racists and defensive about it. But an assertion that demands either you agree with me or your disagreement is ipso facto evidence of your moral fragility is intellectually dishonest, leaving no room for debate. It's why the stark choice, either you are a racist or an anti-racist, there's no such thing as a not racist idea. Only racist ideas and anti-racist ideas. That theory is at its core, illiberal. There's no middle ground, no room for complexity or nuance. How do you even debate a proposition that states, either you agree with everything I say, or by definition, you're on the side of racists because denial is the heartbeat of racism. And racism and anti-racism is what I say it is. A liberal can never be so certain, so dogmatic about the application of general moral truths to real-world dilemmas. The author Sherwood Anderson told the story of an old man who listed hundreds of truths in his book, truth of passion, truth of wealth, poverty, thrift, profligacy, hundreds of truths, and they were all beautiful. But Anderson wrote, the people came along and each grabbed as many truths as they could. The moment one of the people took one of the truths to himself and called it his truth, trying to live his life by it, the truth he embraced became a falsehood. Liberals believe in pluralism because we believe that human reality is plural. Values conflict. As Sherwood Anderson understood, wealth can be a virtue, but so can thrift. Work can be a virtue, but so can play. Access to information is a virtue, but so is privacy. 
Justice is a virtue, but so is mercy. Reason is a virtue, but it can lead to excess and unreason. Sensitivity to feelings is a virtue, but so is sensitivity to facts. Egalitarianism is a virtue. Self-awareness and self-improvement are virtues. But sensitivity training, anti-bias training, cultural reprogramming to curb microaggressions can easily become illiberal and frustrate our liberal intentions. Even the sounds of these terms resonate with the potential of Orwellian excess. Doesn't mean we shouldn't embark on the journey. But it does mean we have to be careful on the way. And we need our best teachers and our best leaders, the most sensitive to complexity and diversity and the most truly liberal, to guide us on the right path. Institutions of learning should be devoted to the cultivation of curiosity. We should learn in school to develop a tolerance of the range of human dissimilarities so that we can expand the richness of the human soul. The task of the best educational institutions and the task of the best teachers is not to tell students what to think, but to give them the tools how to think. What Jews know for sure is that any abandonment of the liberal order is bad for Jews. America has not been perfect to us, but it has been immeasurably better, more tolerant, more welcoming than any country on earth at any time in history. The country has many difficult problems, and race is at the center of them. But it is untrue that America is irredeemably racist. There are plenty of racists here. But to deny that the United States has made enormous progress since its founding is to distort the history and the reality of America. We're making progress towards a multiracial society, arguably more progress than any other country in the world, even though such progress is too slow for many of us. The founders had many moral failings, with slaveholding being their most egregious hypocrisy. But it did not invalidate the American promise that all are created equal and have the unalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In fact, it was this very promise, written most eloquently by the slaveholder Thomas Jefferson, that planted the seeds of slavery's eventual demise. The country was unable to sustain the internal contradiction. It is true that capitalism produces social inequalities and income disparities. But it is not true 
As one thinker recently wrote, that to love capitalism is to end up loving racism, and to love racism is to end up loving capitalism. Every other system, every other modern alternative to capitalism, communism, socialism, fascism, turned out to be utopian illusions or frauds. There is no perfection in human affairs. Sometimes the least bad option is the best option. So where does all this leave us? What are we supposed to do now? The school year just beginning and in the years to come. I want to address parents and adults first and then the youth. To the parents. It seems to me you have four basic choices. First, you can leave the school. Remove your children from an environment that you believe has become hostile to your worldview. Some parents have done that. But most have not and will not. At some point, it is unviable simply to pick up and leave. And where would you go anyway? So many other institutions are struggling with the same issues. Your second option is to stay because you're pleased with the school's approach and you disagree with practically everything I have just said. <laughs> if you fundamentally disagree with me, let me hear from you. I welcome being set straight. Your third option is to stay, grin, and bear it. It's what many families do. I have spoken with and heard you. Better to get through high school in these exceptional academic institutions so that our children can continue their academic careers in exceptional universities. But if you grin and bear it, and you offer no Jewish counter view to your youngsters, do not be surprised that they will return from university one day filled with animosities towards the Jewish people and the Jewish state. Your fourth option is to stay and push back. If you want to influence what is taught in your children's school, let alone whether your child's Jewish identity will be respected. You must be involved. And you must be organized. You will find plenty of allies. Most people are far less dogmatic, far more uncertain, much more practical, and much less ideological than what may appear at first glance. They do not spend their days constantly seeking microaggressions. You have plenty of ways and plenty of means to exercise influence. You may even be in the majority. Remember, majorities do not necessarily determine the character of an institution. Vocal and determined minorities often carry the day, especially if the majority is cowed, intimidated, or silenced. 
Motivated and organized minorities will prevail over passive and disorganized majorities every time. So get organized. You might surprise yourself with what you can achieve. Generally speaking, the heads of our schools are excellent professionals and sensitive, intelligent, and impressive people. They became educators in the first place because they wanted to devote their lives to something important. For them, education is a sacred task. They care about their students, and they love, they love the institutions they lead. They have risen to the top of their fields because they are among the most talented of their peers. By and large, they're doing the best they can. They need to hear from you. They need your support. When necessary, they need to know that you disagree with them. But remember this. Professional leaders of large organizations tend to be measured, responsible, careful, and moderate. They are constantly seeking compromise, the middle way. You cannot lead a diverse institution by being ideologically rigid. Unless and until proven otherwise, you should regard the heads of schools and directors of departments and DEI consultants as your friends. Do not assume that they are antagonistic. They may not be as knowledgeable as we would want them to be about the Jewish experience or the history of anti-Semitism, so take the time to speak with them, to educate them, and to sensitize them to thoughts, words, behaviors, and ideas that have caused devastation to Jewish communities. Stay in touch with your children's teachers as well. But remember, teachers do not carry the weight of the institution on their shoulders. Some of them are younger and more ideologically rigid. Some are filled with ideas and passions they picked up in universities and are bringing them into your children's classrooms whether you like it or not. It's not surprising that 15 years after American campuses began exploding with anti-Israel animosities, that these views are now appearing in high schools and even in middle schools. Some of those university students of 15 years ago are now teachers. It's not that these teachers are unaware of your views. They believe that you're the problem. You're standing in the way. You are the product, the result of unfair privilege. The way to break the vicious cycle of injustice in this country is to retrain your children, not with you, but despite you. Not the case with most teachers. But it is the case with some, and you need to be alert. And finally, to the youth, I'm happy to see quite a good number of young people here, and I hope online as well. 
You young adults, you're amazing. I admire you. You're quick and creative. Your values are good. You refuse to countenance any discrimination of any kind. You believe deeply in social justice. You are more accepting of diversity than any generation before you. It's a sad commentary on our times that adult behavior is not always a good model for you. Everywhere we turn, adults seem angry, impatient, rigid, and intolerant. Too many politicians and leaders of our country seem incapable of treating each other with basic respect. They do not know how to win, and they do not know how to lose. When they win, they exhibit no magnanimity. When they lose, they avoid responsibility, blaming their loss on fraud and rigged elections. Something wrong is always someone else's fault. You youngsters, even if you disagree with everything I said today, okay, boomer, we heard you. I hope that you will have absorbed the two central Jewish values we have tried to instill in you and that you live your lives accordingly. First, behave decently towards all human beings. Be kind, generous, and patient, even online. Social media can be a filthy gutter of unfiltered human impulses. Whenever I publish an, art an article or a speech, the amount of fetid bile that comes back can fill a large cesspool. It doesn't have to be this way. You young people grew up with computers attached, basically attached to your limbs. You may not control how you are perceived, but you can control how others perceive, how you perceive others. You can control how you act towards others. Listen to people. Respect them. Learn how to disagree agreeably. Disagreement is the lifeblood of democracy. If we do not leave space for debate, liberty is unsustainable. Remember, you youngsters, everyone makes mistakes. You too will make plenty of mistakes. Therefore, Allow people to make amends. Treat them as you would want to be treated. Forgiveness is among the most important values lacking in America today. Repentance, atonement, accepting imperfections of ourselves and most importantly of other people. This is critical to leading a contented life in a decent society.
Try not to hold grudges. You youngsters, try to forgive those who disappointed you. Do not cancel them for every stupid thing they may have said. Everyone says things that they later regret. Young people especially are entitled to make mistakes that will not cost them their career opportunities 20 years later. We should not have to bear forever the mark of Cain for every stupid thing we said, even if those things really were quite stupid. Second, you young people, be proud Jews. I worry about your generation. I worry that your link to our past and your desire to build our future are not as strong as generations preceding you. All of the nations that lived by our side in antiquity, some of whom are mentioned in the Bible only in the context of seeking to destroy us, they are all gone. We're the only ones left. The entire future of our people is in your hands. If your generation wants it, Judaism will survive and thrive. If you do not want it, yours will be the last generation of American Jews. Learn more about your tradition. You do not have to choose between your liberal values and your Jewish identity. That is a false choice that others place before you. The values that most animate you, peace, justice, freedom, social responsibility, liberalism, optimism, these are all Jewish concepts. In fact, Judaism introduced many of these ideas into Western life. Kids, I'm always looking out for you, trying my best to protect your dignity, your Jewish dignity. It's why I always accept invitations to speak with young adults. In the current atmosphere, with so many false accusations, lies, and attacks directed towards Jews and Israel, my purpose is to stiffen your backbones and to restore in you a measure of Jewish confidence and pride. And I hope that those of you in university who I don't know and never met I hope your parents and friends send you this sermon, at least so that you can contemplate that there is another side to what you are experiencing. Be strong.
and of good courage. The rabbis teach the future of the world rests on the breath of schoolchildren in the classrooms. Amen.